Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices. We try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. We're branching out a bit here today because of a book series Tom and I have enjoyed for many years. Sadly, it's now come to an end with the death of the author, Philip Kerr. I say that because although the series has been successful, I'm hoping it can avoid the necromantic fate of the characters created by Robert Ludlum and Tom Clancy. The books follow the checkered career of Berlin detective Bernie Gunther, and although this is a podcast about leadership, I think the real underlying theme is survival, often against very long odds. Bernie's first appearance in print was in March Violet, set in 1936 Berlin. Subsequent books jump jump around in time and place, but Berlin is really the beating heart of the series. The book we're discussing today is the last one to be published, but it's actually the first in Bernie's personal chronology. Metropolis is set in Weimar-era Berlin in 1928, with Bernie, a veteran of the First World War, now working for the Berlin Criminal Police Department. Gets his big promotion from the vice squad to the murder wagon, just in time to pursue a serial killer called Winnetou, who scalps his prostitute victims. As with all of Kerr's work, this one is grounded in very detailed research into the period, and that's part of the fun of these books. Winnetou was the Apache hero of a series of novels by Carl May, very popular in Germany, and they were published between 1878 and 1910, so they would have been very familiar to the boys who ended up in the trenches of the First World War. Tom, where would you like to uh, start with our discussion today? Well, well, Richard, uh, we both love this book. We love the author. We love the character. Uh, This particular novel had a poignancy for me probably because I knew the author had died uh, before uh, it was published or at least released. And uh, so I felt like I was saying goodbye to a very, very good friend. Uh, There's a few characters in literature I feel that way about, but uh, this one was definitely one of them. Uh, A couple of uh, uh, things I would like to maybe uh, set the stage with here. One is the title of the book, Metropolis. That was uh, um, more than a nod of the hat, but I think an homage to French Lang, uh, his great movie Metropolis. Uh, And also, um, the book was written as if Gunther became, if not not the uh, inspiration for, a technical advisor to the French Lang movie M, where uh, a child murderer is caught with the help uh, by the police of the... Uh, German uh, criminal class, the uh, German underground, uh, who are equally horrified that someone is murdering children. Uh, there's both a German version, uh, starring Peter Lorre, and he came to the United States to make an English language version. Version. I've seen both. Uh, if you have the chance, watch both, but certainly watch the German version. It's much more expressionist. Uh, I thought much more uh, light and dark, and particularly dark, um, and uh, much more sense in the feel of the people in the uh, architecture for Berlin. Uh, but uh, the thing I would like to maybe start with is shadow and light, uh, because that seemed to me to be one of the themes of this book. Uh, the light, uh, to the extent there was uh, light in the summer in Berlin, and he did comment on how beautiful the city could be on a gorgeous day. Um, he was also working at night uh, quite a bit. 
the killer uh, killed one set of victims at night, one set of victims during the day. And so a lot of his work was at night. And then, of course, there was, uh, frankly, the darkness of his soul. And that really led to, for me, the probably the overarching theme. You pick survival. I certainly cannot disagree with that. Uh, mine was a little more specific. Uh, whether you call it PTSD, whether you call it survival's, survivor's guilt, uh, whatever you might call it, uh, that the men on both sides of World War I had to go through when they came out. So if you picture this novel in 18, excuse me, 1928, it has been literally 10 years since he's been in uniform. Um, he has a couple of episodes, one where he actually physically puts on a uniform and he almost becomes sick. Um, there was uh, one episode where they went to a, a home for uh, soldiers who had been in, injured so badly that they were basically deformed. And uh, he has such a visceral reaction uh, to that as well, that literally shaking him up for, for, I think, 48 to 72 hours. But he talks about uh, wanting to jump jump into the sewer just to get undercover. Uh, he talks about uh, the, the, the sweating at night, the shaking at night, the uncontrollable sweating and shaking. And this is 10 years after he was in the war. He also talks about the camaraderie he has with literally anyone else who served and that there is a brotherhood there and a trust factor there, whether or not you're on the right side of the law, the wrong side of the law. I've just happened to read several novels that take place in the, the 1920s, and uh, the horrific trauma that the veterans went through stayed with them in a way that I had not fully appreciated. Um, I don't recall knowing much about this condition as a child growing up in the 60s. Certainly now it's much more uh, well-publicized. Uh, but uh, I would have to assume that uh, people of our parents' generation uh, went through that um, as well. Uh, but this, uh, the what Gunther has to go through literally to survive, but also it's not survive in Weimar Germany or survive in uh, what is soon, as we now know, soon to be uh, Nazi Germany. It is uh, the survival inside his own skin for me. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. And, you know, one of the things that, that struck me when you're talking about the novels of the 20s is the U.S. had an entire lost generation. But those were not people who'd served the entire war in the trenches. Um, it was much worse in France and England and Germany, and we tend not to think about that. They actually had the deformed soldiers. And, in fact, one of the real, I think, characters in this book is that underworld of all these soldiers who were so badly wounded that they couldn't earn a living, who were reduced to begging on the streets of Berlin, and were regarded as shameful by, by certainly the Nazis coming up, um, but an embarrassment. So, so uh, let's explore your idea of survive a little bit, a little bit, uh, because uh, I actually have one quote I wanted to read, which I think may speak uh, directly to that point, uh, and uh, this is a. A quote that it's uh, really an, uh, it's an interior monologue, but he does say it to someone. Um, so uh, let's see if I can hear the question. Um, I guess I never realized how lucky I've been. I'm looking at this fella in the mirror and asking myself what it must be like <clears throat> to wake up and be confronted with this horror every day. Uh, his colleague said, what's the answer, Bernie? 
<clears throat> Bernie uh, Gunther. I thought for a moment, seeing myself like this made me realize something important, <coughs> something profound, that was probably going to affect me for the rest of my days. Thanks to Bernard Wise and Brigitte Mobling, I've achieved something useful, even if I never did manage to catch the criminal, I'm going to try to pronounce his name. I've been given a genuine life lesson. So here, 10 years later, he has this aha moment that uh, he is finally doing something useful with his life. Along the lines of, uh, if I took the, uh, the lost generation, you know, so what does it all mean? What is it all for? Why are we here? Having survived literally four years in the trenches, um, this is what he's still dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah. And I guess the other lesson he took out of the trenches was you do whatever it takes to survive. I'd mark that passage, too. And uh, one of the things he talks about is how you had to be lucky uh, to get out without a scratch. And whoever he's talking to remarks, you had to be smart to be lucky. Um, uh, there, there was both, but um, I read a couple of other uh, English novels uh, recently where um, they focus much more on the luck. Uh, because you could be walking... Shoulder to shoulder, you could be walking 50 yards from your nearest comrade, and they could easily go down, as easily go down as you could, and there was no rhyme or reason. It was, whether it was a machine gun bullet, whether it was a sniper's bullet, whether it was an artillery round, whether you stepped on a landmine, it really didn't matter because um, so much of it, did, luck did have to play with it. And, and I've always wa- <clears throat> wondered uh, if many of the soldiers struggled with survivor's guilt. Well, a personal anecdote, my paternal grandfather served in the trenches, and he never talked about it, um, except once he did tell my mother a story that uh, he had left his dugout to go visit some friends, and when he got there, the friend's dugout had just been hit by a shell, and everyone was dead, so he helped dig out the bodies and went back, and in the interim, the dugout he had just left had been hit, and everyone was dead. So yeah, luck did pay a significant role. One of the other characters, though, you mentioned was Bernard Weiss, um, who is a historical character, as most of these, as most of the uh, side characters in these books are. Uh, he was head of the murder division of the criminal police, and he was Jewish. And the writing was on the wall at this point for being a Jew in Germany at all. And so he's struggling with how to survive. Um, and at one point, Bernie thwarts an assassination attempt on him. And he wants to go by the book and report it. And Bernie says, no, we can't tell anybody this happened. Um, just, and he, he uses the excuse of, you know, what will your wife think in the future? But, but it's really also Bernie's survival. Uh, the man they've, they had to kill was a Nazi. He doesn't want to be marked as a Nazi killer. Um, but so perfectly happy to bend the rules to... Uh, just in order to live. The historical vice uh, did manage to escape Germany in 1933 after uh, Hitler's uh, rise to power and lived, spent the rest of his life in London. So, uh, How about a few words on the murder wagon? Because uh, <laughs> that actually was a real thing. And yeah. uh, when, he, when he say he joins the murder squad, he joined the murder wagon. And the murder wagon was a more mobile transport that literally took uh, detectives to a murder site, but 
it um, fascinatingly had a, a stenographer slash secretary mm-hmm. in to type notes as they would dictate to her their initial impressions on the site. It also had a forensic team who could do at least a pr- preliminary for forensic analysis uh, mm-hmm. before the, the full uh, team got there. So I thought this was a, a really interesting innovation and certainly presaged uh, many of the uh, investigative techniques still used today. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and that was one of uh, Vice's uh, inventions. And the the use of photography and forensics was, was cutting edge. Um, one of the next themes I'd like to explore was uh, the Weimar Republic. And that's um, probably something that's not studied as much in the United States uh, as, it, as it should be. But here's the question I wanted to pose to you, Richard. When I read The Purple Violet... I, I won't say I was shocked by the uh, description of Weimar Berlin, but it certainly was a libertine, (laughs) certainly morally flexible uh, place uh, with lots of comings and goings. Uh, The transgender movement of 2019 has nothing on Weimar Berlin. Uh, I would just say um, sexuality was a very fluid concept um, and uh, lots of people engaged in drugs and alcohol uh, routinely. Uh, whether or not to, to blot out pain or whether, uh, for whatever reason. Um, and I was just, I remember reading that book and, and really uh, noticing the descriptions of that level of deprivation. That descriptions were here in this book, but I don't recall being uh, as shocked by it or as surprised by it. Did you have any thoughts on that one way or the other? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one thing is... Um I can't remember if it's Babylon, Berlin, or Berlin, Babylon um, TV series came out a few years ago, which which covers it in fair detail. Um, And a graphic uh, visual representation of it. So I think we get a little jaded. um, But it it really was shocking at the time, too, coming out of the Edwardian period uh, in in pre-World War I to, uh, to this level of openness about sex, the, the flappers in the U.S. were really uh, as shocking as they were to American sensibilities were absolutely nothing compared to what was going on in Berlin. And that comes brings up another issue that we talked about, uh, which is the prevalence of criminal gangs um, who controlled most of the nightclubs, all of the drug trade um, in Berlin, and how they had an almost symbiotic relationship with the police. Uh, the only thing I would say is it wasn't almost. <laughs> I think it really was a symbiotic relationship. And I've always been fascinated by that. Uh, in this book, uh, Gunther makes use of uh, the criminal uh, underbelly of um, Berlin. And certainly in the movie M, uh, particularly, the most particularly the German language version, it uh, is very starkly presented. But I've al- always been fascinated by that symbiotic relationship. Uh, if you want to go to a movie like The Godfather, uh, you clearly see uh, really a, a business structure in place around the family. Uh, and you see a business structure in place that recognizes the police uh, through bribery as an ally and using the police when, when was in their interest to do so. Here we see Gunther using the criminal element when it is in his interest uh, to do so. And whether or not there's a quid pro quo or whether or not it's a, uh, I'm going to lay off you today so you have to help me tomorrow or something along those lines, 
clearly, and I think really throughout the novel series, he makes use of that. And the, I've always been fascinated by this permeable membrane uh, that uh, certain police officers seem to cross <laughs> <laughs> fairly often uh, as well. Well, and as usual in the, the Berlin books of, of Kerr, one of the characters is a gangster. And um, oddly enough, he's not one of the lower-level gangsters. He's one of the upper-level gangsters. And what I was totally unaware of is the German underworld had a structure sort of like the five families in New York where there was a, a supreme council that governed disputes among the different groups. Now, I don't know how the other groups were organized. Uh, Kerr doesn't really describe that whether they were uh, ethnically based or neighborhood based or what. I'm not, I'm not entirely clear on that. But there was the importance of this overarching structure, and they had their own rules, they had their own courts, they had their own enforcement mechanism, which tended to be fairly quick and brutal. Um, but it, it really was a, a, a mirror world in the, in the shadows. So the... Um what did you? What do? You, what are your thoughts around uh, the Weimar Republic? Was it uh, just immediately doomed to failure? Was it just a almost? Sometimes I, I see it just this orgasmatic release uh, of of pent up German um, hate, of fear, of love, of really every emotion after the end of World War One, and certainly the defeat, uh, the government was never really able to govern the country fully, I don't think. Um, any really thoughts on the character of Weimar, or Weimar as a character? Well, yeah, Weimar is interesting. The, um, at the end of World War I, uh, the Kaiser had abdicated and fled to the Netherlands, and there was a total power vacuum, and the, uh, the Reichstag and the politicians had been totally bypassed by... Uh, the German high command and the Kaiser during the war, so they had very little credibility. Uh, there was a revolt in Germany with the criminal, um, uh, the communists, I mean, uh, led by Rosa Luxemburg and a couple of others, fighting the right wing. And there was literally gun battles in the street. And um, so, no, I, don't, I think you're right that Weimar probably never really had much of a chance. And of course, then the uh, the hyperinflation in the in the early twenties uh, really doomed them. So the uh, one of the texts I read in preparation for this podcast called Weimar to Americans, Weimar, the undiscovered country, and I thought that was a a pretty apt metaphor for certainly my knowledge. I have some knowledge, certainly the hyperinflation and the rise of Nazism, the uh, beer hall pushed, uh, but the day to day running of Weimar, their attempts to comply with the Versailles Treaty, um, and all of those things, I think, uh, are really lost uh, to most people uh, from not studying. Yeah, well, I, th I think that's true. And my knowledge is, is superficial at best. But um, uh, on the other hand, it's also true that Germany was still a very new nation, and the regional distinctions remained quite strong. Um, so what did you think about the following? Um uh, Bernie Gunther is Philip Marlowe, and Berlin is a stand-in for uh, Los Angeles. Do you find parallels between Gunther and Philip Marlowe, or are they Absolutely. really too different for your text? And, uh, and, and also Hammett. Uh, one of the things about these books is occasionally I find that the, the use of slang is a bit overdone. Uh, 
Um, but that's true of both Hammett and Chandler as well. Um, and the I think you're right, dead right about the city as a character in the in the books. The, um, the Los Angeles was uh, probably not as big a cesspool as, as Berlin, but it was it had its moments. Um, the other thing I want to point out about these uh, this whole series is to me. Unlike, say, Chandler, these are a cross between historical fiction and detective novels. Um, in terms of the general atmosphere of the period and the use of unusual small details, which upon further investigation turn out to be factual, I'd compare them to the novels of, of Alan first, but then they have the, the mystery component as well. Um, so I just think they're wonderful books. So what about the, uh, the actual detective work? So at one point, uh, there are a series of murders of young women. Uh, this was the scalping mm-hmm. that we referred to in our opening, uh, opening of this section. But then the murders changed, and they moved to uh, execution by gunshots to disabled veterans who are begging on the street. Uh, now, they do not appear to be connected, but uh, that turns out they are connected. And... Uh, the way in which Gunther makes that connection, did you find that to, to really uh, even be plausibly that it could be uh, inspired uh, insight, or was it really so outlandish that we just have to chalk it up to uh, a uh, fiction author's uh, moving us along in a direction he wanted us to go? Realistically, I think it's probably the latter. Um, at this point, Bernie is uh, still a relatively young man, and he's brand new to the murder business. Uh, in one of the subsequent novels, it would make far more sense to him to make that connection because of his deeper immersion into the world of homicidal maniacs. Um, but uh, again, the details are, are so good. The use of the twenty-five caliber uh, Browning, the... Uh, uh, use of uh, the, the, the train noise to cover up the shootings and so forth, I just thought was was wonderful. And yes, I mean, you have to give an author a certain, certain leeway. He does have to you know, tighten up the book a bit. So It, it didn't disturb me at all. There was, so Richard, I guess I'd, perhaps we could end with uh, where you thought this one might rank on the, on the pantheon of Bernie Gunther uh, novels. Um, we may presage this, some other novels, uh, but we may take those up in later podcasts. We both love this series so much, but uh, truly wondering uh, what your thoughts were in this origin th- story, the prequel, uh, and or is it simply because we're saying goodbye to an old friend that it makes it so poignant for the both of us? I think this book holds up well compared to the others. Um, as with most series of this type, I think the first one you read is, is the revelatory one. And so I'll always have a, a fond spot in my heart for March Violets. But uh, but I think this one holds up very well. And I think part of that is, as you pointed out, the Berlin is the character. Uh, I would agree with you. Um, he has a series of adventures, detective adventures, crime adventures uh, during World War II. And um, I just found that uh, investigating murders in a 
during the war is probably, uh, it seemed to me uh, that there could be other things talked about. But, uh, I mean, they're good stories, but they didn't seem to me to have the same poignancy as before and after the war. And certainly your point on, on March violence, I, I was just, uh, I can't remember if, if you're the one that turned me on to Bernie Gunther or uh, how I found out about him, but I was literally blown away the first time I read him. And so it was that revelatory uh, moment, even though I think he was a, a detective at Alden. Was he a detective at the Alden by then? Or was that in the later in the trilogy? That was later. I, okay. think, he, I think he was, I think he was still with, with Crypo and, okay. uh, in the, in March violence. But this one really holds up. It's uh, it just paints. I mean, you can see the words, you can see the painting, you can see what he's saying. You can taste Berlin. You can smell Berlin. You can feel it. You can taste and feel the horror and what's going on in his head. Uh, at one point, he has a significant drinking problem, uh, but he does that in large part uh, just to numb himself from remembering what he went through in the trenches. Uh, it, his drinking is so heavy that uh, his superiors <coughs> comment on, on it, and he eats breath mints after breakfast on the way to work. Um, well, well, at one point he lays off for a bit, and uh, describing it, he says, "Frankly, I was in danger of not liking the stuff anymore. It was beginning to taste a lot like medicine. The next time I drink, I want it to taste as if it's something I'm doing only for pleasure." <laughs> so yeah, it was it was anesthesia, and he was certainly not alone. Uh, and that's right. But it, it really all all of that, uh, and even his his descriptions of his PTSD event, uh, events. I thought uh, Led gave a greater poignancy uh, to what he was going through. Uh, the two lead char- uh, detective characters, head of Crippo, or excuse me, the head of the murder squad and his assistant, I thought were wonderfully drawn. Uh, the criminal element was wonderfully drawn. Uh, but I, I, I do have to go back to the city of Berlin as a character, and that really uh, probably was the difference for me. But uh, I really uh, would encourage anyone to... Uh, has read any Bernie Gunther to read this, or if you haven't read any Bernie Gunther uh, to read this, although one of the reviews said it's certainly fine to read this book before you've read any of the others. However, uh, you must read all of the others first. <laughs> so, well, we certainly encourage you to read all of them. Uh, they're uh, they're not all of the, quite this high standard, but they're all definitely worth worth reading. Thank you for listening. This is Richard Lummis with Tom Fox at 12 o'clock high. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 o'clock high, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.